Welcome to Overcrest. Something's fucked up with the sound. I can hear it. Turn down this channel. It didn't do it that time. Okay. So. All right. I'll just turn it down for now if that's what the deal is. Left panel, did you hear that? It's like a like a blurbling or something. It's not clear. Wait a second. Is it you? Okay. It might just be. I'm this. not. I don't have good enough ears to. All right. We'll try it one more time. All right. How much time is that our thing? Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we're here in Muggy. Minnesota, we, for some reason, it's really, really hot. <laughs> we both drove our 911s, and I come in just sweating yeah, into it's the a, studio here. It's a super hot one today, but we've got a cool podcast for you. Hey, now. Yeah, that but, was pretty corny. Yeah, that, that was good. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Yeah. So on this week's episode, we have safety first, Chris, yep. and safety firsts. I think that's almost as good as mine. Yeah. Almost. It's yeah. almost. Yeah, All they're right. both up there. I like it. So it's the history of safety devices in the automobile. Okay. It's going to be a good one. How much is this? So this is a Volvo episode is what you're well, saying? Well, yeah, we do feature <laughs> Volvo. Frequently. Are we going to end with Volvo being nuked for basically ruining cars in lieu of safety? No. No? Okay. You well, can comment on that if you want to. We'll get there, this, I'm sure. This, I think it's going to be a fairly long episode, so okay. I, won't, I won't leave you quite enough time to do a full <laughs> diet drive. That's okay. And that's by choice. But before we get to that, Chris, you're a big football guy. I do. I love football. You keep trying to get me into it more. The other day, I was like, right, Jake, I'm really lonely. I don't have anybody to watch football here with me. Will you hang out and watch football? And Jake is just like, nope. And he peaced out. And I'm like, do you can come back if you want. And he never called, never came back, back, never texted, I don't nothing. Have the patience for it. No love, no nope. nothing. Didn't want to hang out with me nope. at all. So I was so, here by myself. Do you ever do any tailgating? No. Okay. Well, if you do, it typically means hauling a whole bunch of stuff in and out of the back of your pickup. And TechLiner from WeatherTech shields truck beds and tailgates against scratches, dents, and paint damage. Like so many accessories from WeatherTech, they're tailored for each model. So you can find one that is designed to work with the exact contours of your specific So they make truck one for bed. your ultra-rare five-speed Hummer <laughs> H3? Well, I don't know if they do for that. <laughs> but most trucks they do. You wouldn't know because you don't. Have a I do truck. not have a truck. No, but they're super bet, easy. Can you believe that I've never owned a pickup truck? I, that other does kind of surprise Other me. than a rabbit pickup truck. I've never owned. That's true. I guess you had a little a, rabbit. A pick-me-up truck. <laughs> never, never owned one. Regardless, if you did, you'd have your WeatherTech tech liner. They're super easy to install. There's no need to drill or like apply any harsh chemical adhesives to it. And if your truck sees extreme weather, like we have up here in Minnesota, you'll be glad to know they won't crack, break, or warp in all the crazy temperatures that we have up here. So, Look for TechLiner on WeatherTech.com and enter your vehicle make and model to get started. Also, be sure to check out WeatherTech.com slash Overcrest 
for a chance to win one of those 20 $20 gift cards they're giving away to our listeners. Rad. All right. So what have we got? I suppose I got to talk about some stuff, huh? Well, you were down at Checked It Out Chicago. I a Midwest was. Porsche show. So you stayed here and got super blackout drunk at a wedding. Correct. And, uh, <laughs> and you lost the, uh, the recorded... Um, I did. I there was you. he left some me a evidence. super drunk voicemail about how some random person recognized him. It was like, "Oh, you're Jake from the podcast." Yeah, it was cool. It was uh, it was a slur tastic. Yes. Um. So yeah, I was down. I checked it out. I went with uh, my buddy Chad, who's got a 911 SC, right. and my buddy Steve, who's got a 911 S, a mid year car and an SC car. So we went down there and uh, just basically hung out for the weekend. It was great. So, um, the previous event was, I mean, it was, it was a similar area. So like the because this is the second year. This is the second year, so they had like a downtown Chicago vibe the first time. And if you remember, we had those guys on the podcast yep. to talk about the show. So I'm not going to get into the details of why the show exists and everything like that. Um, but the contrast from last year to this year was it, it, it was almost like it wasn't the same dudes planning the show. Really? It was really good. They really, awesome. really went from, we're going to do a show, to we are going to do a show. <laughs> so okay. they had like a charity event the night before, which I spoke at. So me... And uh, a guy named Ingo who did uh, some artwork, and um, Ray Schaefer was there. Mm-hmm. So one of my photographs got auctioned off. And it was, I saw that. It was for a charity that basically gets books into kids' hands that can't afford books. Very cool. Which was really great. I think they raised $8,000 in uh, in charity dollars wow. for that charity, which is a lot of books. You know, yeah, that, no kidding. That's a lot of, uh, you know, don't turn the page Grover books from sesame street so everybody that's got kids knows exactly (laughs) what book i'm talking about so uh yeah that was great i spoke at the charity event and got to kind of try and impart a little bit of passion that i have for getting out and about and you know how cars are taking the car taking the car and the the print was actually one of the ones where you were driving in the car where i took the shot and you were driving the car of uh hogsback ridge of hogback ridge and that's very cool as everybody knows it's a very special place yeah for me and as you remember, I basically cried when I got there when I was with you. But that's the third time I've been there, and I still cried. So I don't even have one of those prints. You don't. myself. The only place you can get a print from me is something like this or if you're a Patreon. So I need to be a Patreon subscriber to our show in order to get one? You have a print for me. I gave it to I you already. Know, but I want that But one generally, now. I don't sell prints just because I think that you know, if you want something beautiful like this, you should go out there and, and experience, and it, experience yourself. it yourself. For sure. um, so I don't really sell prints. So it was nice to, you know get the print in in the hands of somebody that was that was really passionate about it and it raised a bunch of money for charity and that's awesome but the show itself was was really really good the organization was pretty good um you know the the the, uh the location was very similar to last year kind of downtown urban cool i think i'd like to see it spread out a little bit more okay i always feel you know kind of cramped in you know with all the with the urban show it's really hard because there's no space right it's yeah no i can't imagine and parking lots are uh, a premium but there's like an indoor area to show and an outdoor area to show that's cool and the best part was getting just to see familiar faces that have only become familiar to me in the last couple of years yeah which is really cool to see what the midwest is doing in terms of porsche culture and I know there's like not everybody that listens to the podcast is Porsche people, but um, for the for the culture that I really love, it's cool to see it growing. And uh, yeah, any any community that you're into that's growing, it's always cool to see. Right, right. And uh, with most of those guys are great. A lot of them are coming up to the rally. There was a whole lot of I can't wait for the rally, <laughs> and uh, I can't either. So I'm really really excited about everything going. So hey, I mean I'll definitely go to the show next year. I thought it was fun um, seeing all the people that I got to see and hanging out and seeing cool cars and. There was this one, oh man, there was this one group that had their cars there. Okay. And these dudes brought armed security guards to guard their car. Wait, seriously? Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, so that was that was kind of a comical and funny bit that they had armed security guards with badges. They didn't mean it to be comical, though, I imagine. Uh, considering they had guns, probably not. <laughs> but that, so that was a little bit Wait, weird. in They're, Chicago? In Chicago. Well, the cars that they had were really no, sweet. No, but, like, when it comes to guns in Chicago, you need a really, really good permit for that. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to guess you're probably right. Well, I think if you're a security guard or if you're previous law enforcement, right. it's probably but a little bit easier. they probably are, yeah. But they had, there was police there. But they also had armed security guards. What were these cars that warranted just, their own private security force? They were just hot rods. Just, okay. you know, hot, they were really well done. Yeah. There's a green one there that I really liked. Um, I, but you couldn't steal it. But you could steal guard. it. Yeah, although, <laughs> Otherwise, you would have. Yeah, I, there would be nobody at the show that would see you stealing one of the cars. <laughs> um, got to hang out with the guys from P-Car Talk, which was great. Did a little, cool. did a little interview with them. And uh, I'm sure that'll be out in the next week or two. We'll see mm-hmm. how things go. Again, talking about you know the merits of exploring and everything else. So very cool. Um, I had a great time. Got to see a lot Good of deal. Cool, a lot of friends. So you also are wearing a shirt. Yes, the new Overcrest <laughs> shirts are here. <laughs> I don't the rally. I feel like we shouldn't plug the rally too much because it's the signups over. Yeah. So we're I, only rubbing care. it in people's faces we if are, they yeah. haven't aren't able to get on. But so, do you want to yeah. just? Go over that and move to your next topic because I want to hear your next topic. No, let's just skip on. The rally's coming. It's going to be awesome. If you're not there, cry, cry. Nothing I could do for you. Maybe next year. <laughs> okay. You're buying a winter car? I am. I have to buy a winter car because I can't I can't drive the Mercedes. Why not? In the winter. Because it's too nice. Oh, geez. It is. It's too nice. Okay. What do you mean, oh, geez? I don't know. They rust. Yeah, okay. Okay, they rust. It's not an aluminum car like your RS4 is. Those are that's an aluminum car, right? Mostly, yeah. Mostly. I can't you know, I can't drive that car in the winter. It's going to turn to dust. And that's the problem with living here. Yeah. If you have car taste, one of the problems. One of the problems. If you have car taste, you can't find anything that you want to drive that you don't care about. Cuz if you find something that you like, mm-hmm. you can't drive it because you're going to ruin it by driving it. Okay. I always feel a little bit bad about taking a car that's cool or low miles or whatever and then driving it through the salt and ruining it. I mean, it doesn't get ruined just because you drove it one winter. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much a good way to start ruining a car. <laughs> Especially so, something that's already 20 years old. Okay. And some, so, maybe some of the factory undercoating has got some spots that aren't there anymore. You know, it's a good way to get going with the rust. Okay. It's, especially with the liquid salt that they use now. Yeah, I know it is. It's not rock salt nasty. anymore. It's really nasty stuff. So, so you already bought something. Um, no, I'm go- so I'm going to look at it tomorrow. Okay. And it is a friend of mine's car, and he, someone, sideswiped the car. Okay. And the car's basically totaled. Okay. okay. So it's uh, what are you doing? What are you squinting? I'm at looking there? through your your blacked out. You you have this uh, black. I, I have everything so blacked out, see. so I can just tell you. Okay. It's redacted. It's redacted. <laughs> so the car. Yes. Is uh-huh. a 1998 uh-huh. Jaguar What's a Vandenplas? It is the long wheelbase ultra luxury edition so from Jaguar like that year. So is this the XJ12? It's a, based on the XJ8, Okay. which is the X308 Not that I chassis. know anything about Jaguar, but yeah, so this they're was, big sedan. It is huge. So, okay, this thing... <laughs> So I was I was gonna get to this later, but okay. So your RS4's wheelbase is 104 inches. Okay. The 911s that we have are 90 inches. Okay. This thing is 118 inches. And how big is the RS4? 104. Yeah. But this is an this is the wheelbase. This yeah, isn't not the overhangs. The overhang of the trunk that fits like 700, you know, immigrants <laughs> that are trying to get into the country. Okay. This is this thing is massive. Okay. It is so big that the rear seats have. 
fold down burled walnut tables. Oh, that's cool. And you can adjust the rear seats like they recline a little bit yeah. and everything. And uh, it's super. I'm assuming. I haven't even seen the car yet, but I'm assuming it's super comfortable. So you have a line on this thing. I do. So it was in an accident, okay. and it's likely totaled. It needs a bumper and a so fender and a headlight. This is where surround. the part comes in that you don't feel bad. Right. It's already. First of all, nobody. They're not desirable. Interesting. So this car in 1998 was like sixty-seven thousand dollars or seventy thousand dollars. They're worth four to six thousand dollars now. Sure. So I'm getting the car fairly reasonable because it was in an accident. Okay. So it needs a fender, a bumper, and a headlight surround, and maybe a little bit of buffing on one of the rear fenders. Okay. But that's really it. So then I I found the bumpers and stuff on eBay for like hundred fifty dollars, make an offer type of thing. So I think I can make the car. Look okay, sure, and then still have you know this car that's kind of unique and interesting. V8 then, or what it's is a our V8? It's line? a 300 horsepower V8, okay, and with a BMW uh, transmission, like a ZHF sure. transmission or whatever. Okay, uh, it's the same transmission that goes in the Seven Series. Okay, so it's the third rear wheel drive. Rear wheel drive. Okay, I don't drive. It'll be okay. It'll be fine. I'll, maybe I'll put some snow tires on the thing. I have yeah, no you should. And uh, so it has. The, it's the last evolution of the XJ40 platform which has been in production which had been in production since 1986 interesting so it's uh, it's kind of around the era where ford took over the company so theoretically it should be a all little you, bit all better. you need is a driver you're gonna hire so you can just sit in the back and your burled walnut table that would be amazing i should just find there's gotta be james no no not james it would be uh like wilbur or something wilbur wilbur i think wilbur would be my would be my driver's name <laughs> i want something and this is one of the things that I like about my Mercedes, too, is the Mercedes feels more sporty. The steering wheel's heavy in that okay. car. It's got heavy. It's got... Yeah, it's because all the dirt on that white leather. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's gray leather. Uh-huh. And it's not dirt. It's just gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want something that's just... I don't want to feel anything. Mm-hmm. I want to be completely disconnected from the driving experience in this car. That's my hope, is that I feel like I'm just moving around through the world without doing well, Almost anything. like the, the car's driving itself for you. You no, know, like an no, autonomous just, car that you keep. No, no, no. I just want going like, on against. <laughs> I want a 900 horsepower power steering pump. That's based, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. I want I want 75 percent of that 300 horsepower uh-huh. engine to be powering the power steering pump. Okay. That's that's what I'm after. I don't get it. I'm gonna be honest. I don't get so it. So what's more of a grandfather car, the Jaguar? Or oh, definitely person? the Jaguar. You are re-upping yourself here, man. <laughs> I don't get it. So why is why does this not interest you? At all. It's just so, like, the antithesis of what you're all about is, like, analog, the old 911. I have that already. It, driving I, it. I have that already. I have it. I have the 911. I have the old 911. I can get into it, and I can do whatever I want. There's no fun driving to be had in the winter unless you're going ice racing somewhere. Okay. Or unless it snows once every two and a half weeks. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no fun driving to be had. Okay. All, everything's ugly. It's gray snow everywhere. There's salt on the ground. If you drive anything cool, you feel bad because you're ruining it for the next guy. I mean, if I was going to keep the Mercedes for the rest of my life, I would drive it. And then if I, it started to I rust, I would fix it. have a lot of fun in the Hummer in the snow. Yeah, but you make not... your own pathways and just you you should drive that for a while this winter and just like... Oh, I've had all wheel drive Tahoes and stuff. I've plowed through snowbanks. I've plowed through snowbanks that oops, they're actually ice banks. Have you done that yet? <laughs> like, oh look at that snowbank, I'm gonna drive over it, and then it's just a giant pile I have a of ice. Three foot clearance up to my tire. So Yeah, but most snowbanks are bigger than three feet. Yeah. Let's be honest, because other True. otherwise it's a snow mound. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's gonna be I'm gonna go look at that thing tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. Okay. He said, he's like, oh, yeah, I watched the engine compartment, and now it's misfiring. 
I'm like, like oh, oh, no, <laughs> it's already broken, and I haven't even bought it yet. Yeah, oh, good. Uh, my only update, if you follow uh, me or the podcast on Instagram, is I, I've i found a new wild hair. So you you sent this to me, you're like, convince me not to, or, oh, yeah. no. I'm like, no, this seems like you. Just do I it, want, buy one. I really want a Morgan three-wheeler. Why? It. So I have had the most first world of problems, Chris. I love riding my Harley, the open the elements, you're riding, yeah, it's open, it's cool, and I love driving the 911, because it's vintage, and it's got the sound, and the heritage, and I you just You realize like it. that the Morgan is not going to... It is the combination no. of the Harley and the 911, it 100%. No, it isn't. Yep. It will do neither of the... It will maybe feel make you feel like you're out on the open road, yeah. but it's not going to handle anything like a 911 does. It's not going to give you the same sensation. It's not going to sound the same. It's going to sound dumb. No, they, they, they don't sound, sound awesome. No, they don't. They don't sound yeah. awesome. I know what they sound like. They sound like... Potato, they sound, potato, potato, potato. <laughs> they sound exactly like a, a vehicle that's made for people that want a motorcycle but don't like motorcycles. That's exactly what a Morgan three is. I know, and I don't like that concept, but oh, they look so fun. So they like, do look like they'd be a good time, uh, but I don't know if I want. They're so expensive. What are they? What do they cost? Like starting at fifty thousand. So this would be like a nine eleven replacement. Aren't they made of? Isn't there a lot of wood in yeah. these cars? Yeah, all Morgans, including the Lamas racers, still use a wood buck under their body panels, which is cool. That is pretty sweet. Although I can't imagine having to work with a wood car. At all in, in any hope you just, don't have termites. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you have to worry about that in our climate because then they're all going to die. Yeah. All right. So let's take a moment and talk about Oberk car care. So, Chris, you mentioned that this new Jaguar you're getting is going to need some buffing. You're all set up for so that. I was, for like a split second, I was really upset with Oberk for like one second. You, yeah, you messaged me about this and yeah, I was but, like, I don't so I was like, I got, I got to check it out, and I'm like, what is this white shit all over my car? Oh, I forgot to wipe off the wax on the car. Okay. And then I go, wait a second. That's not wax. It's I got some of this white speckles all over my car. Okay. And I thought it was the wax that I flung from the thing, and it wouldn't come off. I'm like, who designs wax that doesn't come off? But it actually turns, <laughs> it actually turns out that it was... Uh, it must have been like you know when you're seeing some guy like with a concrete saw, yeah, oh sawing. Yeah. And there's water, yeah, that they're like, yeah. I think it got flung over the concrete barrier that they were doing construction behind, sure, and got on my car. So it's like this wet concrete dust. But guess what? My over car care stuff, I was able to polish that off because there it didn't wipe off. You couldn't spray anything oh, on it. And get I got it off. you. It was brutal, but this stuff. Really helped. Yeah, Oberk. They're your source for detailing compounds, pads, and polishes. Like I've said before, after 15 years of experience, the engineers at Oberk have made a simple, holistic system that really takes the guesswork out of paint correction. Whether it's taking some concrete specs off your 911 or polishing out a buffing on it or a big scratch on a Jaguar, you know, it works with all paint types. Be sure to check them out at oberkcarcare.com. Dot com, not comb. That's a different one. <laughs> Oberkcarcarrot.com and use the exclusive code Overcrest to get 15% off your order over $35. And they'll throw in one of their famous Eagle Edgeless Towels for Overcrest fans. You know what else we're doing with them, Chris? Contest. That's right. Go on Instagram. You need to follow 
the Overcrest podcast account, as well as Oberk Car Care. Your paint doesn't have to be destroyed for this. Just take a picture and show us the scratch on your car. Show us what's going on. See if we can help you fix it. Or if it's polished and you want to maintain that shine. Yeah, so what you're it. doing is posting a photo after you follow both of us and tag it Win Oberk. And at the end of the month, we'll be giving away an Oberk Car Care kit to one lucky winner. So did you actually click the link that it says Jake clicked this link? Where? No. In my cl- no. Jake, click here for pick. And it's mm-hmm. a pick of what a... Oh, God! <laughs> okay, what, what, what are you seeing? I'm seeing this Jaguar that... Man, yeah, this is Grandpa Mobile, it 100%. Is how, it is absolutely massive. Is this the car? It's not the car. Because this is purple. It's not. The one I'm getting is beige. Gold. <laughs> it's yeah. gold with I'm tan sure interior, which is like kind of a bummer. Yeah. But for a winter car and the price that I'm getting at, it'll just be fun to experience something new. Well... I'm going to look like fun I'm, is not the word I would use. Fun is relative. I have mm-hmm. fun because I'm trying something different, mm-hmm. which is funny because every time we go out to eat, you get some weird food that looks like it came out of a garbage disposal. And you, you're like, oh, this uh, is you so You are the good. most narrow-minded person when it comes to food. You're okay, like, hey, well, here's my Mr. Kraft macaroni and cheese and my Heinz ketchup. I would actually put those two together. You know I what's, know you, you know would. what's a really good idea, and this was what makes Kraft macaroni and cheese even better? Oh, God. It's when you take two boxes, mm-hmm. throw out one set of noodles, mm-hmm. and double up the ingredients. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fantastic. But speaking of narrow-minded, mm-hmm. you are so narrow-minded when it comes mm-hmm. to cars. No, I'm you're not. You're not even willing to try. You're not even willing to I, give this car a chance. I'm sure it's going to be comfy. I just wouldn't pick it. Why? Just, just boring. You're not going to be taking a round. The thing is 0 to 60 in 6.8 seconds. Okay. There are a lot of other cars okay, that can do so, that. Okay. Well, it's, I don't know. You're not going to be hauling around some heads of state, and you're not going to be chauffeured around. I am head of state. I'm the head of this state. <laughs> uh-huh. Who's driving you around then, Mr. Head of State? I, I like driving myself. <laughs> yeah. So it's just pointless. I, All right. Well, you also say my Mercedes is pointless. Yes. But that is a small a small car, a C-Class. Yes, that's three closer to like the RS4, which I get. I get the sports you, saloon thing. You are narrow-minded mm-hmm. when it comes to cars. Okay, Mr. Opinion, Encyclopedia of I'm opinions. just saying. I'm just saying. All right, let's get on. You know what that Jaguar probably has? Safety features. <laughs> I would hope so. Okay. So in the first decade, Chris, of the 20th century, the automobile was becoming ubiquitous. And yet, as is so often the case, technology preceded any thoughts of safety. After all, horses and carriages didn't really require streets to be labeled with stop signs or lane lines. The only driver education... I'm going to stop you right there and make you switch seats. I know, I can you're, hear it. You're, you have the squeakiest seat that has ever been, ever been made. <laughs> this or are just going to keep it going? Nah, we'll just keep going. Let's have it. <sighs> all right. So, streets were not... Start over. I'm going to flag this. All right, so Chris, in the first decade of the 20th century, the automobile was becoming ubiquitous. And yet, as is so often the case, technology preceded any thoughts of safety. I mean, after all, horses and carriages didn't really require the streets to be labeled with stop signs or, you know, lane lines. The only driver education at the time was how to ride a horse. And drinking and driving wasn't even a crime because as long as you can stay on your horse, you're good to go. (laughs) Right? <laughs> Furthermore, <laughs> horses weren't known to tip over if you were went around a turn too fast. To that last point, a driver training bulletin called Sportsmanlike Driving had to explain velocity 
and centrifugal force and why when drivers took corners at high speed, their cars skidded or sometimes turned turtle. Turned turtle? Turned turtle. <laughs> that was their term for flipped over. This is an excerpt from the Detroit Free Press, June 29, 1914. Speeding auto turns turtle. Ten are hurt. An automobile containing a bridal couple, several wedding guests, three children, and many bottles of liquor rounded the corner from La Bella Avenue on Woodward Sunday evening and turned turtle, going at least 40 miles per hour. So you got married with your children, got drunk, and then flipped your car over. Yep. It turned turtle, Chris. It turned turtle. I'm I'm sorry. And so the first efforts at safety were made. Doing my research on this topic, I came to realize there are basically two main categories of safety. You have regulation that's enacted. It's drunk or not drunk. Well, that too. (laughs) In this case. Yeah, no kidding. No, basically can classify it as regulations towards safety and, of course, the technological innovations that you think of towards safety. So in the instance of the automobile, politicians, police, and judges were first to act. Quote, the law of the automobile was published in 1906 by lawyer Xenophon P. Huddy. <laughs> Xenophon P. Huddy. Okay. He discussed the That's legal... That's Usually I love the names that you have, but I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, Xenophon. Okay. Anyways, Mr... It's, just, it's uh, like early 20th century hippies named that kid. <laughs> yeah, Xenophon, man. It's like a xylophone, but it's a Xenophon. <laughs> so Mr. Xenophon Huddy discussed the legal ramifications of new concepts such as, quote, speeding, the purpose and function of the street, and the rights of pedestrians and unprotected children who played in the street. After all, there were no such thing as children's playgrounds at this time. Back in my day, we played in the street, and we were happy about it. My grandma always told me that she would play with a, a basically a hula hoop and a stick. Yeah, that was see, it. I mean, and you, you, could, you down the street probably. Yeah, you could probably get that st- that hula, that hula hoop going yeah. pretty good. So, Chris, I thought of you for this next part. You're going to love this. All right. In the coming years, serious debate was held in courtrooms and in the editorials around the country over whether the automobile should be considered inherently evil. Oh, all right. In the state of Georgia, their court of appeals wrote. Quote, automobiles are to be classed with ferocious animals, and the laws relating to the duty of owners of such animals is to be applied. However, they are not to be classed with bad dogs, vicious bulls, evil disposed mules, and the like. What the (laughs) hell? So this kind of makes sense when you read into it. An owner needs to be responsible for his or her vehicle, much like the person would be responsible for their dog or horse. Livestock, whatever. Exactly. That's basically what they're saying. But they're saying, but you don't have to think of this as an evil animal, like a raging bull or an evil disposed mule. (laughs) So we know that the raging bull eventually became a car, but the evil disposed mule, not so much. No, probably not. (laughs) Honestly, though, when you hear about the lawless accounts of the day, it's easy to see why these were considered evil new machines. In 1917, Detroit and its suburbs had 65,000 cars on the road, resulting in 7,171 accidents and 168 fatalities. Three-fourths of the victims were pedestrians. Detroit, it turned out, was different from New York City and the East Coast. They must have been texting as they crossed the street. (laughs) No, this is actually interesting. So Detroit is different from New York and the East Coast cities, where most automobiles were driven by uniformed chauffeurs hired by the wealthy. 
they of course would be a little bit more observant. This is their job. They're being hired for it. Yep. They have a stake in the game. In Detroit, quote, everyone from nearly all incomes was driving. One family was driven around Detroit by their 11-year-old son. <laughs> in fact... There's hope for me yet to find somebody to drive me around. That <laughs> yeah, you need an 11-year-old. <laughs> in fact, it was common for light truck delivery wagons to be driven by 14-year-old boys who were then constantly badgered by their management to get deliveries done by driving faster. So you have a 14-year-old who you're putting behind a delivery truck. There's no driver ed going on. And you're saying, hey, come on, kid, go faster. We need to deliver more tulips or turnips or whatever he's driving. Sure, or tofu in the case of initial uh, yeah, D. There you go. Yeah. Uh, one young woman was detained by a policeman after driving on a Detroit sidewalk and killing several people. It had been her 26th arrest for reckless driving. Come on. She said she suffered from blackouts. Well, then maybe you should not be driving. Well, how do you enact it? There's no licensing yeah, system. There's no, if there's no system to enforce the laws, exactly. then that's just how it goes. Well, they wanted to change that. So in Detroit, the traffic squad was enacted. One sergeant and 12 officers who rotated in four-man shifts at Woodward and State Street. Must be the most busy intersection. They devised a signaling method to unravel traffic tangles and blockades. Both, which were terms actually from the horse and buggy days. Because I imagine horses actually got tangled back in the day. I, I suppose. If I, you're pulling? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess if with all the reins and everything like that and the horses. Right. They, like you probably could actually get tangled. Yeah, I suppose. So as Detroit Traffic Superintendent William Rutledge described in an annual report, quote, the upraised hand is the signal to stop and the swinging hand across the body signal to start. The signaling officers drew crowds of pedestrians and onlookers. What is this man doing? He's signaling. So it's the He's signaling traffic. It's the only man, it's the only traffic cop in the world to ever be happy about his job. <laughs> yeah, you know how proud he'd be with his like white linen glove? It's, it's the only period of history there. where the traffic cop was a promotion. <laughs> exactly. Quote, the drivers who happened to notice the signals of the officers did not seem to understand what was wanted and drove by, making it necessary for the traffic officer to run after them, stop them, and explain the meaning of the signal. The officers had to show considerable patience from the story of the Detroit Police Department, 1916. So actually, it probably was not a promotion. If you're sitting there getting frustrated that people don't know what this means, isn't this kind of intuitive? Yeah, you, Holding your hand out at someone? Yeah but, it's only stop. yeah, but it's only intuitive for us because we know. True. It's only like natively intuitive to us because that means stop. We just know from the earliest days, stop, stop. You know, that, that right. But Which, now that I'm thinking they, about it, now it makes sense that there's a crowd around this intersection. Because you're watching this guy yelling stop at this person. They're like, what do you want? They keep running. Driving and around this guy him. has to run after him go, no, 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 no. Okay, so for future reference, next time, this means stop. Okay? And then when I go like this, then you can go. That looks more like spanking to me with the motion it, that you're doing. It's said over the abdomen in a, like, whatever. Yeah, you kind of. Bend. Slow motion. <laughs> Slap it at. All right. Uh, in, by 1916, then, one-fourth of the entire Detroit police force, 250 officers, were now used for managing traffic. Jeez. So they're like, this is the only thing we can do? Get them all out there. Right. Soon, the police admitted publicly they could not keep up with traffic and could not afford to add any more men to street safety. Well, I suppose you got organized crime and everything else yeah. that's going the on. You can't city, just have a bunch of guys with their white gloves on. <laughs> the city was losing the war against reckless driving, as it were. 
In addition to the dangers that new drivers were creating, there was the major issue of parking. In urban city centers, there was no parking spaces, laws, or even rules of etiquette concerning parking your vehicle. Do you think, could you imagine like parking your car and some guy just pulls up on his horse? Ah, I've been waiting for that spot. Yeah. And there's like a guy <laughs> there with a horse. There are no spots. People <laughs> simply stopped their cars in the middle of the street and left them for hours. That's just ridiculous. Well, I guess if there's nowhere else to go, there's nowhere else to go. I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like a modern utopia for the people that hate yeah, cars. There you go. Well, and it is kind of interesting thinking about that, looking back at where it all started. Because in residential neighborhoods then, homes had no garages or even driveways. So streets were blocked with cars as well in suburban areas. It so, was just a mess. And back in the day, I think I sent this to you. Maybe I don't know if you looked at it or not. But a lot of the, you know, you have something called a parkway, right? And you'd have right. like, or parkway. Yes. So you'd have, basically what you would have is you would have a park that you can walk in with sidewalks and right, yep. these beautiful parks that went right down the middle of like State Street. Yes. And on the edges were just little dirt paths for horses to ride yeah, down. Exactly. And that's all there was. And so everybody, you know, I obviously it was this crazy bicycle. Oh, I love bicycling. <laughs> bicycling driving's terrible. So they ripped up all these parks, yeah. added extra lanes so they could have the cars park. Which, when you think of it from that perspective, is sad. It is sad, but also it's... It was know, necessary. It's an engine of the economy to get the city going for all these people to have, you know, the freedom to travel, to go to the cobbler that's down there or go right. to the pharmacist or hardware store, whatever people did back then when they weren't sitting at home. Yeah. Blowing and playing banjos on the on the deck or whatever. Yeah. I'm trying to remember when the banjo was invented. Probably before the 20th mm, century. It was. Yeah. It. No, I don't think it was. It was early 20th century. Really? Yeah. You would go to the Coopers where you'd go to get your barrels made. Go to the, the modern Cooper. banjo mm-hmm. was invented by Joel Sweeney in the 1800s. Oh. To, draw, to, to the drum, he added a neck with a fingerboard like those found on guitars and other string instruments and added frets so that you can easily play all the notes in tune. All right. Well, let's uh, turn off a tangent street here and get back <laughs> to Safety Road. So uh, all these people blocking the streets made people really upset. Derogatory names emerged. Inconsiderate drivers were dubbed... Fliver boobs. Wait, what? <laughs> Damn it, look at this fliver boob leaving his car okay. out here. What's the etymology of fliver boob? I don't know, but it was actually coined by the AAA, the American Automobile Association. The fliver boob. Oh, okay. I'm going to see if I can, while you're doing this, I'm going to see if I can find I, out. You be careful with that one. <laughs> I went and Googled that on the work computer. Yeah, okay, well. All right. Other new terms were born, such as hit and run drivers. Joyriders were ones that stole open cars and took off at reckless speeds, typically abandoning the vehicle or destroying it in an accident. Road hogs, speed maniacs, and Sunday drivers began appearing in the newspaper. Ah, the old, ye old Sunday driver. Juggernauts were cars out of control that plowed through crowds of people waiting for a streetcar, which is sad that that happened so many times they had to make a name for it. Yeah. The Detroit Free Press, January 20th, 1919. Quote, screaming pedestrians were scattered like nine pin. Some were bowled over or tossed against storefronts. The driver's companion, evidently frightened by the cries of the crowd, leapt from his seat and running swiftly disappeared into the darkness. Yeah. Jesus. Like, it was just mad out there. So it's basically just chaos. It's giant free for all. chaos. And I took out so many stories, the sad parts about, like, it was mostly kids getting hit because... They're not watching, and they're out playing in the, the street. Because it's, guys it's just through. the norm. They right, don't know. Exactly. I mean, 
this is the way they were raised. So there's no there's this generational overlap where cars didn't exist when their parents exactly. Were around. Okay, yeah, it was a bad deal. So it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that Detroit, what we now know of as Motor City, was the first to blaze the way and implement many of the first traffic laws. Enter James Cousins. The short, cigar-chomping Canadian was considered one of the most aggressive executives in the fledgling auto industry. He quit his job as Ford's vice president of finance after a final match with Henry Ford where they were screaming at each other. He resigned in 1913 with stock worth $38 million and then became Detroit's commissioner of streets and railways. That's a lot of money back then. I don't know if this article I referenced had it adjusted for today's money. Well, either way. <laughs> either way, that's a lot of money. Yeah. When illegal parking continued to be a problem, Cousins had an easy solution. From a 1917 annual police report, quote, educational methods did not bring about the desired results, so it was deemed advisable to institute a system of intensive disciplinary training. In short, the commissioner ordered illegally parked cars to simply be towed away. Within six months, the Detroit Towing Squad hauled 10,737 cars to a vacant lot. Quote, this too proved to be something of a shock to the thoughtless and careless, but it no doubt proved effective. Yeah, the flipper boobs were super upset. <laughs> flipper boobs were upset, but they didn't do that no more. Detroit police drew national attention for using tennis court line marking equipment to establish crossing zones, safety zones, and no parking areas. The first U.S. stop sign was used in Detroit in 1915, and the first traffic lights, at the time called street semaphores, were invented and developed right there in Detroit. Everything was so much more elegant when it was first invented. Yes. The original design of this street semaphore, or the early version of a stoplight, uh, was basically a it was like green sticks, right? metal circle with a green light and a red metal star with a red light. A policeman stood on a crow's nest platform in the middle of the intersection and manually changed the signs from red to green. Wow. Yeah. That's a demotion. Yeah, that'd be boring. <laughs> Hope you have some coffee up there with you. Yeah, it's not like you're sitting there listening to the Overcrest podcast as you change oh, up the lights. I, you know how excited they would have been to have this back then? That would have been good. By the mid-1920s, a national uniform approach to street and highway safety was finally formed under the direction of Herbert Hoover. The days of free-for-all driving were finally over. But, as I mentioned, that's really only half of the story when it comes to automotive safety. The other side of things are the countless safety innovations and gimmicks throughout the years. One such innovation was demonstrated at the Century of Progress International Exposition World's Fair. All right. Hosted in Chicago in 1933. Quote, one of the biggest thrills of the fair was the safety glass exhibit in the Travel and Transportation Building. At the exhibit, baseballs were provided by the Ford Motor Company and could then be thrown at several panes of glass. The ordinary glass would shatter and scatter, while the ball would actually bounce back from a piece of the safety glass. So we're talking about laminated glass, right? Exactly. Could you imagine these, you know, these just basically plate glass windows on cars, where if you get in an accident, all this just... Oh, my God. Just so all these I, shards of glass yeah. being shot into the... I know. So I didn't include it here because this is more interesting. But before the days of this laminate glass, what they would do is it was like a Hudson Motor Company. Their safety feature was the glass windshield would just pop out. Because if you hit it hard enough where it's going to shatter, they want it just to pop out. They want it to go away. It's right. Just, it, oh, man. 
yeah, blood everywhere. Bad deal. Yeah. Really bad deal. So everyone that threw a ball at the exhibit received a free good luck coin that reads safety glass sharpshooter and shows a <laughs> baseball hitting the safety glass. So a fun fact that I found about this whole demonstration, the baseballs, they, were, they featured the Ford branding on them, and Henry Ford himself was actually on site to sign the balls for some of these okay. guys. They are extremely collectible today. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah. Going Ford? for upwards of $15,000 for one of these. Oh, my God. Well, I found one of the coins for 40 bucks. That's kind of cool, too. Yeah, safety glass sharpshooter coin. There's the baseball with the glass right there. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. It was cool. So, of course, shatterproof glass certainly wasn't the first safety feature to be developed. On a freezing, wet winter day in 1903, Alabama resident Mary Anderson was riding on a streetcar visiting New York City. Being from Alabama, she presumably wasn't used to the freezing weather and the sleet and the snow, and was concerned when she noticed that the driver of the streetcar could hardly see through his sleet-encrusted front windshield. Mary began to sketch her solution right then and there on the streetcar. After a number of false starts and different tries, she came up with a prototype that actually worked, a set of wiper arms that were made of wood and rubber and attached to a lever near the steering wheel at the driver's side. When the driver pulled the lever, the spring-loaded arm was dragged across the window and back again, clearing away raindrops, snowflakes, and other debris. People scoffed at Anderson's invention, saying that the wiper's movement would distract the drivers and cause accidents. Surely they were only giving her a hard time because she was a woman, I'm Unf guessing. Well, at this period of time, I have yeah, to guess. Either way, her patent expired before windshield wipers ever saw mainstream use. No kidding. Yeah. How long does it take a patent to expire? 20 years? I think it's closer to like 10 or 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. But that was, what did I say? 1903. So, yeah, I mean. 20 years. Yeah, there the you go. The utility patents, wow. 20 years. So, so in 1923, all of a sudden we see windshield wipers everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Another innovation we take for granted has an interesting origin. In 1911, Ray Haroon, who was known not only as an accomplished race car driver, but also as a successful constructor himself, he was nicknamed the Little Professor for his pioneering work creating with Howard Marman the Marmon Wasp, which was a revolutionary design, being the first open-wheel, single-seat race car. Haroon is best known for winning the first running of the Indianapolis 500 at uh, Indianapolis, uh, and that was May 30th, 1911. However, it's one feature of this race car, the Marmon Wasp, that makes it stand out, the inclusion of a rearward-facing mirror. Uh -huh. Rune claimed to be inspired by a similar idea he saw on a horse-drawn carriage some years before. Before this, no one had ever thought it's, of a mirror. It's amazing that the, the things that we're so used to dealing with every single day, at one point they did not exist. Someone had to think of everything. Everything that you see, <laughs> everything that you see in your car, a key. Because at one point cars didn't have keys yeah. or, or brakes or all this stuff had to be, you know, kind of designed which is really really especially like a mirror yeah it sure would be nice to see if anybody's behind me especially on the racetrack can you imagine he's the only car out there that can see behind him i'm sure these guys are just looking over their shoulder left oh and right. yeah and this guy's just focusing gets to look in the mirror <laughs> there's pictures of this car out there too it's kind of cool all right and all these stories of these inventions they have kind of a common thread they're all just single innovators early Some guy just was day. like oh yeah exactly oh yeah i'll a mirror. talk about that more later but let's move on to the next one okay Florence Lawrence. <laughs> Born in Ontario 
in either 1886 or 1890, we're not quite sure, but her father, George Bridgewood, was a carriage builder. Her mother, Charlotte Lotta Bridgewood, on the other hand, was a vaudeville actress. Florence, it turns out, was drawn to both of her parents' professions. She's often referred to as the first movie star and started nearly 300 films throughout the course of her career. All about five minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> They're and all silent films. And she didn't have very many lines. <laughs> no, zero silent films. As such, Florence found herself on the receiving end of the financial windfall that was the burgeoning movie industry. With a constant flow of work, Lawrence was soon wealthy enough to purchase an automobile, a somewhat extravagant rarity, especially for a woman at the time. Finding a sense of freedom and enjoyment behind the wheel she'd never before experienced, Lawrence took to driving much as she had to acting. Delving headfirst into the world of the automobile, Florence became invested in the car, something that, in her words, responded to a kindness and understanding and care, just it's, as people do. It says right here, it says, quote, if you're not out exploring, you might as well be dead. Seriously. Florence. Florence. <laughs> I know. I, I knew you'd love this. So in 1914, after years of learning about tinkering on her car and figuring things out, Lawrence devised a mechanism that served as a signaling arm for drivers wishing to turn. Though the simple, through the simple push of a button, her invention raised and lowered a flag on the rear bumper what's of the, the car. What's the actual name of this? There's an actual name. You're thinking of a semaphore, I believe. Is that what it's called? It is what it's called, isn't semaphore, it? Semaphore, yeah, is just like a, a signaling yeah, device, yeah, yeah. I think. This is pre-semaphore. This is literally a flag that goes up and down. Oh, Like okay. a literal flag, I, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. That goes on the... Because um, I was thinking of the stuff on like the early, really Volkswagen. early Volkswagens. Yep, the bugs yeah. where you'd yep. like pull a little thing and sure enough, a flap pops up. Yep. So uh, you'd push a button, and it would raise and lower a flag on the rear bumper to inform other drivers where the car was headed next. What a novel idea. Along with this, she developed an equally simplistic and was ingenious there a standard, device. Hold on. Was there a standard for hand signals? I don't know if there was by this point. Because, I mean, we all learned the hand what signals. What is this, 914? And... 1914? Yeah, probably was the hand signals at right. that point. Uh, she also uh, developed an equally simplistic and ingenious device to alert fellow motorists of an upcoming stop. Upon depressing the brake... A small sign reading, what else, stop, would pop up in the rear of the car. Sure. Through rudimentary and design, her inventions would ultimately prove invaluable on the road. Unfortunately for Lawrence, however, again, she failed to patent this creation or any of her other ones. So the hand signals were uh, basically standardized in the Vienna Convention of Road Traffic in 1968. So <laughs> Wait, 1968? That's what it says. It says, uh, Well, that's yeah. internationally. Vienna. Internationally. Well, that's the stuff we're used to with the okay. arms and stuff like that. So I'm sure maybe there's... At the time... There's a lot of signals that you can throw at your window oh, that'll get the point sure. across. Yeah. <laughs> so our previous ones hadn't been successful in patenting their designs. One who individual who was successful in patenting his Do you idea, think that's just because it was harder to go through the patent process back then? I read a little bit about it. It wasn't. It would take long. It'd take you a year to get your patent application approved. Yep. And it was 250 bucks, which is probably wow, substantial at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, it probably was. Uh, so, anyways, one who did have his patent or his idea patented was Oakland, California resident Benjamin Katz. In 1921, he filed a patent for an automobile, quote, headrest noting that the device could stabilize the head when it was subject to the jolts and irregular movements inherent in driving these automobiles. 
because I'm sure suspension wasn't what it is now. <laughs> well, basically, you have solid rubber tires and leaf springs. Yeah, exactly. Not good. No, if it was solid rubber even. Sometimes it was literally the metal band on the right, like right. A wagon wheel. Now, Chris, we can't talk about automotive safety without talking about one of the most hardworking, influential figures in the entire industry. Okay. And, Chris, I really think you and this guy have a lot in common. I am, of course, talking about Someone crash awesome? test dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I thought I was going to be Henry Ford or something. No. All right. This next story I really like. Colonel John Paul Stapp, known otherwise as the fastest man on earth, was an American career U.S. Air Force officer, fighter pilot, flight surgeon, physician, biophysicist, and pioneer in studying the effects of acceleration and deceleration forces on humans. I working be, with I, contemporary, I'm not done yet, working <laughs> with contemporary Chuck Yeager on advancements for the space program. I want to be this guy. Now, Chris, please ask me why he's called the fastest man on Earth. All right. This is fire engine number one. It is a rocket-propelled sled used for making deceleration tests at Holloman Air Development Center, Alamogordo, New Mexico. Wow. That lo- <laughs> That's a pretty hefty the contraption. The man being strapped in is Colonel John Paul Stapp, Air Force scientist in charge of these experiments. Is he going to be the crash test dummy? Information obtained from the tests in this sled will be used to redesign aircraft seats and safety belting, affording pilots and passengers greater protection against jolts and emergencies. Six rockets developing 27,000 pounds of thrust Hurl the sled down the 3,500-foot steel rails. That's like a in mile. In the forward section, crewmen fasten Colonel Stapp in with a network of belts and straps. When did this guy die? breaks when they come in contact with water troughs at the far end of the track. X hour, and the sled is fired. Oh, my God. High-speed camera <laughs> reveals Colonel Stapp's face at the peak of deceleration. Oh, my God. Look at his face. approximately 22 times the pull of gravity. 22 G's diesel. Oh my god. Well, you see his face just basically turns to jello. in the first yeah. 10 feet after the brake scoops hit water. The impact of meeting the water trough disengages the after section of the sled where the rockets are located. The forward section Why? to a halt. Just so we can test seatbelts and Completing deceleration his dangerous effects. ride. Colonel Stapp apparently none the worse for his experience. Yeah, right then. Himself, <laughs> anxious to know the results of the test. He's like four he feet taller know. than he was before it started, I'm sure. <laughs> That's all I wanted to show you there. So We'll link that in the show notes. It's a good you should it's watch It's a it. cool video. Yeah, it's you know what that is from, that rocket sled? Did you ever watch the stupid new Indiana Jones? The Crystal Skull or whatever? No, I um, wouldn't suggest myself There's a scene in there where this rocket sled is in it. And Harrison Ford like jumps on it to get away from the Nazis or whoever it is. Twenty two G's of deceleration. Uh, can you like even the? Oh. So he, when you get into a car accident, well, how much G's are you experiencing? But you're experiencing them instantly, right? Right. It, it's on and off pretty much, right? It's right. The, it's I don't think that makes it any better than twenty two G's over yeah, the course of sure. time. So regardless, this guy's a badass, and he likes to study deceleration and stuff for uh, the Army. So, Colonel Stapp... Okay, 19- I got a stat right. for you? Yeah, go. 160-pound person wearing a seatbelt traveling only 30 miles per hour experiences 30 Gs of force in a front-end collision with a fixed object. No kidding. So, But that's that's instant. What we just saw is him being... Like, uh, he was doing 22 Gs for the entire time that thing is sucking up <laughs> hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. Yeah, can't yeah, be okay. comfy. 
All right, so this Colonel Stapp in the 1950s noticed that more fighter pilots were dying in car crashes than they were up in plane crashes in the air. So what did he do? He began a crash test study program, of course. You know why he actually did the crash test study program. Why is that? Because he didn't want to ride on that stupid sled anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's my guess. That was his study. I know, but he's probably like, oh, he gets home, he lays down. That dude crawls to the bathroom in the morning. <laughs> Guaranteed. There's no way. Regardless, to test the... Have you ever heard of Gumby? Yeah, that's, that's Gumby that's right there. Yeah. Why didn't his arms fly out in front I'm of him? I'm sure he's got everything tied down. Uh, yeah, I'm, sure I'm sure he his is arms are strapped in. in. I'm surprised he didn't have a strap across his head. Yeah. I mean, wow. Jesus. All right, so to test the efficacy of seatbelts, he put dummies into salvage cars and crashed them into wood or concrete barriers. Now, I didn't include this. So he had some, like, what we think of as crash test dummies, just like yeah. mannequins. He also had cadavers like dead people he'd use, and like pigs, live pigs they'd strap in to also test for crashing. And humans also volunteered for these tests, withstanding up to 28 Gs of force. Yeah. Yeah. So from his findings with real humans and dummies, Stapp recommended several innovative features for car safety. The first was doors with safety locks so they don't fly open in a crash, uh, improved bumper design, and dashboards with energy-absorbing padding. Well, that's very nice. Yes. What about well, the steering wheel that goes through your chest? Yeah, I know. I didn't get to that one. That's, yeah. yeah, that's a big one. Uh, while his insights were crucial to develop safety tests and procedures for the automotive industry, having human volunteers proved uh, unfeasible. So they switched to an inanimate crash test dummies that we still have today. Now, believe it or not, crash test... Oh, this is what I was going to tell you. Yeah, they used cadavers before they had the crash test dummies, chimpanzees, hogs, and other animals. I, th I would think that you could... I would think using, like, a pig... Well, oh, man, I don't know. I'm the not anatomy's really different on a pig, right? Yeah, I'm still... I'm not done with the no. unethical treatment of animals very much. I, uh, I, don't even I, mean, you, I don't even want you putting your stupid shampoo on something, let alone strapping yeah. it into a rocket sled. I mean, are we going to have, like, a big pig roast afterward? Yeah. All right. Some, like, tenderized bacon? <laughs> <laughs> it would be. So this usage of the animals was problematic, of course. Thankfully, dummies, or the anthropomorphic test devices, were developed in the late 1940s, and Sierra Sam was the very first one of them. Is the Sierra Sam on a mud flap? No, no, that's uh, Yosemite Sam. Yosemite Sam. <laughs> no, it was just like their first crash test dummy. Okay. They called Sierra Sam. Uh, like Stapp's volunteers, Sierra Sam was used by the Air Force, where he had the lucky job of testing ejector seats. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Sam may not have been testing car crashes, but the design led to the crash dummies used in automotive testing around the world today. Another famous device was patented by John W. Hetrick. Quote, Sierra Sam looks quite like the crash dummies that we know today. Yeah. From he, what I can it see. It is I mean, like just an evolution of yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't go into the really nerdy detail, but they, Sierra Sam led to Hybrid One, which okay. is what was known as like the universal crash dummy. When did they dummy. start doing the little symbol on their head? Hybrid Three. Okay. So it took the third iteration to have Because that has actual electronic sensors and stuff in there. Right. So they can use that in the camera. They can see how far it traveled in a certain amount of time. They can measure yeah. speed, distance. Maybe that different. was Hybrid One, but the actual electronic sensors in the dummy, right. that's Hybrid Three, which is used around the world now. And that's the one that has the um, like G-force sensors exactly. and, and exactly. accelerometers, stuff like that. Correct. All right. So John Hetrick, quote, 
In the spring of 1952, my wife, my seven-year-old daughter Joan, and I were out for a Sunday drive in our 1948 Chrysler Windsor. Which I need to interject. Whatever happened to the Sunday drive? I still do Sunday drives. Yes, you explore local roads, you're looking for wildlife and stuff. Nikki and I actually used to do this when she was in medical school up in Duluth all the time. Because it's it's cheap. It's, it's only just, the cost of gas. It's cost of gas, maybe some ice cream. Yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. Go for a Sunday drive. Take the car. Anyways, John and the fam were out on their Sunday drive in 1952. Quote, about three miles outside Newport, we were watching for deer bounding across the road. Suddenly, there was a large rock in our path, just past the crest of a hill. I remember hitting the brakes and veering the car off to the right. We went into the ditch, but avoided hitting both a tree and a wooden fence. As I applied the brakes, both my wife and I threw out our hands up to keep our daughter from hitting the dashboard. During the ride home, I couldn't stop thinking about the accident. That's called stopping short, isn't it? Isn't there a, there's a great Seinfeld episode where uh, uh, Kramer mm-hmm. is sitting in the... I think it's... No, it's George. It's got a... No, Kramer. It sounds like Kramer. <laughs> Regardless. He's, he's sitting in the car, and he's basically... He wants to sell... Um, he's working with... Uh, uh, I think it's George's dad on like like selling trench coats or or man's ears or something like that. Okay. And uh, he 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 stops short. He hits the brakes and he reaches over and ends up touching George's mom's boobs because he sticks his arms over there and and she goes oh and then it totally ruins. You stop short with my wife. Now here's the thing: was stopping short a thing back then? Was it like? No, because, because there was no lap belt. Did you have a girl in the passenger seat and like hit the brakes and stick your arm I, out? No, I think. And go, oh, sorry, Julie. I just <laughs> was making sure you weren't going to make contact with the dashboard. What it is, I think it's instinctual. Anyone you care about, you're, you want to like, especially or kids, anybody you want to touch their boobs. or touch their boob. Yeah, okay, <laughs> good, good to know that one too. But he kept thinking, why couldn't some object come out to stop you from striking the inside of the car? As soon as he re- returned home, Hetrick started sketching designs for his quote safety cushion. On August 5th, 1952, he filed the disclosures and waited for his patent. It was the first in a long line of innovations that eventually brought the use of the modern-day airbag. And so was this like a sofa cushion that would shoot out of I the dashboard? I think this was yeah, less, less about like an airbag and more like, here's a pillow! <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned before, the thing I love about all these stories is how it's an individual who's inspired to develop a solution to a problem that they had personally witnessed. That's it's hard how, to do these days. I know. It's a true inventor in the classic sense, and it, it really doesn't seem to exist anymore. No, it's well, it's humanity has moved on. You know, we've, it, we've evolved to the point now where there's we live in a pretty safe, comfortable, prosperous, wonderful world. As I much know. as everybody wants to bitch, whine, and complain about what's going on in society. It's true. Other than, you know, the social construct evolving. It's it's still a pretty good place to live. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's flying through plate glass windows or yeah, no kidding. You know any of that kind of stuff. So moving right along, the next innovation on my list was developed again by a single person, but this time while under the employment of a certain Swedish car maker. Nineteen <laughs> for a minute actually. In 1958, Volvo Car Corporation hired mechanical engineer Niles Bolin who had finished work on his design of ejector seats for Saab fighter jets. So different yeah, yeah. Saab or different born, part of Saab. Born from jets. Yeah, that's where it came from. So how does a car company that also designs fighter planes not be the best car company that's ever existed in the, right? human, in the existence of humanity? I, know. I mean, how can we not? Yeah. Can we just have had a little bit more jets in the car? <laughs> can we just somehow I just... I, yeah, I really... I never, when I ever sat in a Saab, I wasn't like, wow. 
This is this is this is like a fighter plane. Look no. at where this is. You know what? There's there nothing that ever felt fighter planey. You know what does? A Morgan three wheeler. Yeah, <laughs> you're on your own, man. All right. <laughs> so Volvo suitably hired him to be the company's first chief safety engineer. This is in 1958. So here's a fun fact that I didn't really know. Volvo hadn't always been Jake, about. I completely think you should get a Morgan three wheeler. I know. They're cool. They're so cool. I would ride with you in that. Yeah. I would w- want you to let we'd, me drive. We both have goggles and like caps. If yeah. you buy me goggles and buy me a little leather hat, I'll wear it. Okay. All right. Anyway, you also have to get a helmet, a little leather helmet for your dog with little goggles. Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, great. I know. <laughs> All right. Anyways, back to our fun fact. Volvo hadn't always been the forerunner in safety. They weren't always known for that. The story goes that it was a relative of Volvo CEO Gunnar Inglow who had died in a car crash a few years prior, which helped motivate the company to increase its safety measures. So someone close to the CEO died in a car crash, and he's like, I'm in charge of a car company. Why can't we do better with this? Right. And I think from that moment on, they kind of really put to work on safety being their forerunner. So that's like the first iteration of a corporate entity giving a shit (laughs) right and do you know why they still do it because it's a marketing yeah of course at this point but everybody wants safety yes bowen was put to work on developing a better restraint system for volvo cars he had actually worked with the more elaborate four-point harnesses in airplanes and knew that system would be untenable in an automobile yeah no it's the first thing i think is when i get into somebody's car and they have a four-point harness in there i'm like I'm not Come on. on. Can I just sit on this and put the lap belt exactly. on? Exactly. It's any, any streetcar that's got a harness like that just Dumb. sucks. Yes. Within a year, Bolin it, had unless been, it has the lap belt that you can use when you're just driving around regularly. Right. And you can flip the harnesses back behind the seat. Yep. And then you use those when you obviously when you go out on track. Sure. You know, it's nice to That'll have, work. It's nice to have both, but I still prefer yes. the lap belt. And it was actually designed with the car in mind. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like because our what's our Sam? What's our guy? Sierra Sam actually used that lap belt and tested it as opposed to these racing harnesses well, that you the racing, tested. Obviously the racing harnesses have been tested. You they know, have. if you look at like Schroth or something like that, I they've know. they've definitely been tested. They have. And there's nothing that's going to be safer at holding you in your seat than a four-point harness. Depending on what they're latched to in the back. Correct. And you go, <laughs> that's one thing that people do is they have them in the wrong spot, so it actually stretches too much. If, well, like, and also what it does is it compresses your spinal cord. Right. They need to go straight back. That's right. A lot of people like tie them to the floor, tie them to the yeah. seatbelt stuff in the back. It's bad news. Not good. Don't do it. All right. Within a year, Bolin had developed the three-point seatbelt introduced in Volvo cars in 1959. The new belt secured both the upper and lower body. Its strap joined at the hip level and buckled into what Bolin called an immovable anchorage point. So why did it take 50 years for this to happen? I don't know. This seems so common sense to me. It does, but there wasn't... I mean, seatbelts weren't even used that much up until this point. Right. The kids are just crawling no, around in the backseat. No, people didn't use them. Yeah. So why have a new innovation? Um, according to Bolin, quote, It was just a matter of finding a solution that was simple effective and could be put on conveniently with one hand because think about it you're not gonna every time you get in the car you just grab the seatbelt put it in yep as you want it as easy as possible exactly in the interests of safety listen to this volvo made the new seatbelt design available to other car manufacturers for free that's awesome it was subsequently required on all new american vehicles from 1968 onward now since we're on the topic of volvo and in the interest of time 
I just want to list off the rest of the innovations that are attributed to Volvo. Okay. Because they were all on my list to go through one at a time, and I'm not going to do that. 1991. Volvo introduces its side impact protection system designed to be spread out the force of impact over the entire car. So basically, these are the anti-intrusion bars in your doors. Up till then, the door didn't have anything really structural. Just a hollow death box. Exactly. 1994, Volvo introduces side impact airbags. Self-explanatory. 2004, Volvo introduces the blind spot information system. They called Bliss. It's basically your blind spot awareness where on the the mirror, the little thing comes on. Uh, 2008, Volvo introduces... Wait, Bliss? Bliss. That's a terrible Blind Spot Information System. Not good. I know. It doesn't even fit the acronym. They're using the L from blind. It's (laughs) B-S-I. Bis. Busy. Bisis. All right. Uh, 2008, Volvo introduces autonomous emergency braking on its XC60 automatically braking to help drivers mitigate or prevent collisions when sensors pick up an oncoming vehicle. 2010, Volvo developed the pedestrian detection system, causing cars to brake automatically when they detect a pedestrian. It uses cameras and radar technology to keep an eye out for other vehicles and pedestrians. Now, Volvo really are pioneers in the industry when it comes to safety features, but I just really can't wrap my head around a lot of these new smart safety features. Or the car won't go very fast. Exactly. And it turns out, I'm not the only one. Now, Chris, I just texted you a little video. There's no audio we need to listen to, but I'll describe what you're looking at as soon as you open it. Okay, there are... uh, Oh, my God. I'll describe it. Oh, okay. At the start of a bicycle race in France, the vehicle in front of the bike seems to suddenly slam on its brakes, creating a pileup of bikes running into them from behind. The report states that, quote, the race starter, waving a flag from the sunroof of his Renault, accidentally waved in front of a front-facing camera that was an avoidance sensor located in the rear view camera. Okay, this so activated. This is, a, this is a really unique situation. Please wait. <laughs> so yeah, it activated the emergency braking and prompted half of the bicyclists to run right so into the vehicle. So what he's talking about, there's a lady riding on the roof of the car, and there's It's a, out of the sunroof. About 75 p- bikes behind it. The car comes to an abrupt stop, and everybody just basically... Piles right into face, it. Face plants right into the back Right into the thing. back edge, yeah. yes. However, yes, you said this is a very odd instance. This is not the only instance of this happening. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has received over 400 individual complaints over the past three years from Nissan, Honda, Volkswagen, and other automakers over automatic braking issues. Most of the complaints are from drivers who said their car's brakes activated suddenly, even though there was no danger present, sometimes while they were traveling at highway speeds, Others said the brakes didn't engage as expected when there was danger. 14 complaints involved a crash, with most of those drivers describing the car braking so suddenly it was rear-ended by the vehicle behind it. One driver reported losing control of the car when it unexpectedly engaged the brakes at highway speed and caused it to spin out and crash into a guardrail. So devil's advocate here, this is basically what we're going to say is, this is probably, I don't know if you want a discussion on this in, in this episode or not, but you have safety you have versus the, okay, yeah you have these you have safety over here mm-hmm. these are the instances where it did not work mm-hmm. show me the instances where it did work i know okay and that's they're going to say well there was thousands and millions of instances well not millions but thousands and tens of thousands of instances where the system worked and saved lives saved property blah 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 and these 150 or so outlying things don't really matter because it's better for the common good yes 
That's what they're going to say. I know. And I I agree. The only reason I wanted to bring this up. But this is a definition of slippery slope. Yes, it that is. is the, <laughs> it's not because it's it's not because it's taking my ability to break away from me, but it is the yes. slippery slope of where do we go from here? What are we allowed to do and where are we allowed to do it? So that's actually great to where my point was going. While there's no doubt that this automatic braking cuts down on seriousness of crashes and saves lives, it also warns the tech the NHSTA warns that this tech isn't uniformly defined in the industry, partly because it's so new. Technology in car A works different from car B, and here's what I bolded for myself to make a point of. Furthermore, most buyers aren't even aware their cars have this ability. That's right. Most people are completely ignorant. They're like, oh, I want that car. I just want the nice one. And most of this stuff is add-on. It's starting to become standard, but for right. a long time, any of these safety, autonomous, adaptive smart, cruise control, exactly. all this stuff was all options that were kind of expensive. But now they're starting to become standard, and regular people just you have don't no know, idea just that don't it's there. So obviously, education is and standardization are the two key things yeah. for making this happen. And as I say all the time, I'm cool with all of it as long as I'm still allowed to do exactly. what I want to do. But the question is always. If you're going to have all these cars driving around, where <laughs> does my car fit into that? Am I going to be allowed to drive my unsafe, you I, know, sardine yes. can, uh, oil burning death box around these other cars? Are I, those other are those owners of those cars going to want me around? Right. I took this out of it because it's a whole nother tangent, and maybe we'll do a new story later on it. But uh, Volvo just released last year the fact that their cars will talk to each other in the sense that if it has some sort of um, emergency braking scenario, it'll notify the other cars anonymously via their network that that car braked in front of you. Right. So here's the question is, how does my car fit into that? Exactly. Into will that they allow program? other cars out there? Because at some point, that's going to be standardized. Yep. To the point where all cars will talk to each other. So what are you going to do with the one car that's the outlier that can't talk to everyone? So here's the question is if all these cars can talk to each other and they're all networked together, who houses that information? Good point. It's what a are they doing agency. With, what are they doing with that, with that information? Big brother. Home office. That's what they would say in the UK, <laughs> the home office. All right. Sorry. All right. Well, before we go on, you know what isn't scary? Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service specifically for automotive enthusiasts. These are guys that don't like autonomous cars driving and talking to each other, most That's likely. Right. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers. Sometimes they throw in publications. And all of it is put together and sent right there to your door. There are two levels of subscriptions to choose from. The Petrol Box Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrol Box Premium gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. So you can check those guys out, and please do, at mypetrolbox.com, and use code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. Sweet. All right. So up until now, we've been discussing all the successful, noteworthy innovations in the field of safety. But what about the more strange mishits out there? All right. Here are a few of my favorite. So this one is fairly recent. Let's see if you remember it. And I have a video that I'm going to play for you here, Chris. Kate's car is the last in a deserted lot. But with the world's first personal car communicator with a heartbeat sensor, she can detect an intruder inside her car. Come introducing on. the all-new Volvo S80, a luxury car that protects the luxury of life. <laughs> so give me a break no, that's right this was a thing 
Volvo's when? when was this? Heartbeat sensor. When was this? This was, I think, early 2000s. Oh, well, apparently people didn't really give a crap nope. because you didn't see it anymore. Nope. The heartbeat sensor would detect the sound of a heartbeat in your car and warn you via a blinking light on your key fob if there was an intruder in your car. You know what you can also do? Is walk up to the car and look in the back seat with your I, eyeballs. I, I can only imagine that some Swedish engineer saw too many kidnapping movies that week and was like, Wait, we could make a sensor in the car. Yeah, that one's pretty ridiculous. See, that's the thing is Volvo basically is at this point, how much more ingenuity can you do? So they're going to start throwing things at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. What people will pay for. I know, right? All right. Next up, we have the water-filled bumper. I'm trying to send this to you. It doesn't matter. All right. So next up, we have the water-filled bumper. Okay. So before the days of modern crumple zones. I can imagine what this is. Yeah. Before the days of modern crumple zones, many public buses were equipped with bumpers that were filled with water. And they were designed to basically explode upward and diffuse all this kinetic energy. It's just like the the big barrels that you see at the off-ramps. Exactly. Yeah. So this is basically still used in that principle with like the off-ramps for the energy absorbing crash attenuators. Right. So basically you're just, this is just physics. You can't compress a liquid. So instead it just moves out of the way. Correct. But it still is acting as a force pushing against you. Yeah. That force. Well, this was before crumple zones were a thing. So once crumple zones became nan standard and mandated on cars wasn't necessary this, it wasn't necessary so you don't see that one anymore another quote safety device from a bygone era is the dog sack <laughs> chris you take <laughs> usually your, you, you get rid of those <laughs> <laughs> true all right you you take your dog on car rides occasionally right I do. yeah yeah where, where does she sit in the front seat with her head out the okay. window okay well not everyone likes to do that who doesn't like to do that people kinda... that don't like car hair in their vehicle so okay. the solution, circa 1936, was the dog sack. Are you sure it wasn't uh, Mad Max, circa 1980, whatever, where he had the little little dog sack in his car? No, that's not the dog sack. Here, I need to I need to get this one over to you. I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna text this to you because it is really good. thing here how about i show you wait <laughs> was this invented by mitt romney's great 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 grandfather oh, i forgot that reference <laughs> this got a dog oh. with clothes hangers in a sack outside the door <laughs> it's literally a canvas sack that's attached to the outside of the car sitting on the running boards. And it had a lower portion that hooked onto the windowsill at the top. The dog was placed in the dog sack and off you went with man's best friend. Chris. As he gets pelted in the face with a Oh, the no, rocks. no, no. Chris, that's a feature. They even provided an air hole so that pup could stick its head out and enjoy the, quote, sights and smells of the road. Of the actual road as it falls off the sack and <laughs> not good. Next, I would never submit right, my dog. You'll that. like this next one. The rim-blown steering horn. Okay. All right. A rim-blown sounds pretty fun. It does. <laughs> Isn't it annoying, Chris, when you're holding on to your steering wheel and you want to honk your horn, you have to remove your hand from the rim of the steering wheel and move it all the way to the center of the horn. That's so annoying. Well, my horn doesn't even work. <laughs> so True. Your non-existent horn. Well, let me tell you, the 1960s automotive researchers had just the answer for you. 
The logic seemed kind of sound. In a stressful situation, you instinctively tighten your grip on the rim of the steering wheel. Right. So what would happen? Basically, it had sensors, so when it felt excess pressure, that's how the horn would sound. I would just imagine my kids not being quiet and the horn going off (laughs) as I'm gripping the steering wheel like, (laughs) No, it got worse than that. So they actually did produce these. Okay. The manufacturing technology of Detroit wasn't really up to the task, though, of making it work properly. As time went on, the sun would shrink the plastic of the steering rim, and the the horn would just blow all the time. Just blaring at all the time. Yes. So... We talked earlier. You know what my horn is? What? I just rev my engine in my car. Yeah. And speaking of revving the engine in my car, yeah. I forgot to tell you this story earlier. Okay. Is I when we were at check, there was a checked it out. There was a I was just driving through town and all of a sudden there's a Tesla dealership there. And it's big and there's Teslas. All of a sudden I'm like, I felt like I was in <laughs> Eastern Germany or something <laughs> in the eighties. I'm like, oh my God. There's Teslas am, everywhere. The enemy is near. <laughs> and I'm sitting there at this stoplight, just and I look over. And there's this woman, yeah, all black with a little red name tag on. So she obviously works for Tesla. Yeah, she's scowling at me. No, so I just start revving the living <laughs> hell out of my car. And I mean, it's wow, 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 and I'm just like, and she just the look of loathing and disdain and hatred that she had for me. But it was only for a second. Uh huh. She looked at me with this look that only lasted a moment, and okay. then she's like, "Oh my god, I don't want that guy to know that I care." And then she beelined it inside. Wow. Um, it was pretty good. So my horn is my engine. I usually just rev it if someone's not going. Yeah, that's effective as well. Because I, I ripped the horns off my car. Not it, I, not intentionally. No, this uh, something I ran over something. And yeah, it it sounds like off. you went into the fender well, grabbed them, and just ripped them out. Well, that is what happened after they were broken anyway. So okay. they were broken and dangling. Oh, right. So yeah. then you did actually. So that. then I did that. All right. Our next three inventions here were all designed to address the issue of pedestrian collisions, as I mentioned, was so common in the early years of the automobile. The first of which is self-explanatory. I sent you this t- last week. The pedestrian cow catcher. Yeah, this is awesome. Why not? The O'Leary Fender Company felt it would be logical to strap a mesh plow of sorts onto the front of your car. And this isn't just, this is everybody's car? Sure, put it on everyone's. No, put it on everyone's. Okay. This, the, the idea was you'd put it on every car. <laughs> the device would then so be you used to drive around collecting humans or what? <laughs> well, it would yeah, scoop up and collect pedestrians rather than having them roll under the automobile's well, front where you, wheels. Where do you drop them off? <laughs> I don't know. Is there because like a, it's, oh, this photo is so po- funny too because the guy's just lounging up in the cow catcher. <laughs> do you do you just collect as many as possible and then get points for dropping yeah, them off? And you drop them off at the police station. Yeah, you get like a, a bunch of drunks I got on my cow catcher. So our next one, how do you improve upon the pedestrian cow catcher? It's hard, right? Uh, yes. I mean, I can't imagine how that system would be improved. You make a powered pedestrian cow catcher. Oh, no. The roller safety device for sweeping fallen pedestrians. <laughs> So there's some guy that wasn't getting enough points from the sh- from the constabulary. <laughs> yes. So he just need I need something that can really grab as many people as possible. I have possible. an ad from a newspaper. The headline: This roller safety device sweeps away fallen pedestrians. So wait, so does it shove them out of the way? No. It's, or does it pull them into a thing? It's so okay. If an accident looks inevitable, first of all, this isn't a, this isn't always deployed. If an accident looks inevitable, the driver deployed a device consisting of a grooved roller which was mounted on an extended arm forward from the vehicle. The device was geared to the engine 
and would rotate and attempt to sweep the fallen pedestrian in front of the truck is rather this, than letting it be crushed. Is it shaped like an auger? It's No, it's literally a street sweeper. Okay. It just does this. It's it just, literally a street sweeper. I think that the 20s and 30s were amazing. And 10s, just the, wild. Just the complete mousetrap crap. <laughs> I mean, it's... However, if all else fails, you would have the hit-and-run discs. Okay. <laughs> Picture this, Chris. You're walking along, minding your own business sometime during the 1930s when out of nowhere an automobile jumps the curb, blows past you, and knocks you to the ground. Okay, that sounds What awful. a catastrophe. You're probably dead, but okay. No, he just nudged you. Okay. But you're, I mean, maybe you had a few cocktails. You can't, I don't know who that was. How, what do I do now? Well, have no fear because you'll soon be able to bring the perpetrator to justice thanks to the, quote, hit-and-run disc that the car spat out at you after you were run down. How does it know? (laughs) Mechanically activated by the impact of the front bumper, the discs were inscribed with the name of the owner and license plate number. This is ingenious. The idea was bandied about by the automotive press at the time, but never implemented. Because someone finally realized that you just simply didn't load the discs in the thing, and then you couldn't be caught. And you can just run over whoever you whoever want. Whoever you want. Yeah. So I saved my very, very last innovation that didn't quite make it for last. Yeah, for the people that are still listening after an hour and 20 minutes. Jeez. <laughs> Rocket brakes. I, I'm down with this. Is this, let me, let, okay, so I'm not, before you tell me what it is, yes. I'm going to imagine that they are attached to the wheels, just because of the period of time we're talking about. Right. They're attached to the wheels, <laughs> and they force the wheels to rotate backwards. I'm going to just read right from the ad. Quote, spurting up from under the hood, jet brakes stop love- at a speeding car in record distance. Anything that splurts is good for me. <laughs> <laughs> Spurt. Car A, with ordinary brakes, in excellent condition, required 160 feet to stop. Car B, which has a jet thrust brake, stops in 80 feet. Well, I would think so, but unfortunately, you have to carry rocket fuel. You do. In yes. the car, which and makes your car. And it's only used once. And it's a bomb. Yes. The technology was really cool having two separate nozzles that would shoot out from the hood, and it was actually connected to the steering wheel. Can you guess what I would do with this system? Shoot it at Teslas? <laughs> I would turn it around the opposite way. Yeah, and then you have an extra thruster. Yeah, then you yeah. basically, you've, Elon Musk says he's going to have rockets in his car. Yeah, he did say that. I would have had them in the teens and 20s. I would have had yeah, a rocket. Yeah, there you go. But, I mean, it actually was effective. It stopped your stopping distance in half. Well, I would think so, but it sounds like a hideously complicated and expensive system. Yeah, but Someone it was cool just... that it was attached to your steering wheel valves, so you had two of them. So, like, as you're braking, you're jet braking, you could actually steer the thrust a little bit. So, did th- I would love to see video of this. Gosh, there's... I, I don't know if it got that far. There was one Jeep, apparently, they fixed it to. Otherwise, it was in popular science back in the whatever 30s. So, popular 40s. science and popular mechanics is just like the National Enquirer for engineering. <laughs> 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 Basically, at least it used to be. I remember getting it at the library and just knowing that nothing that was in that magazine was ever going to really come Really not going to make yeah, it. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, regardless, there you have it, Chris. The history of the safety developments in the auto industry, both that were successful and not quite so much. I like it. All right, guys, I, uh, I'm i sorry that we didn't get to the top movie cars of all time this week. That's right. That's we were gonna... all waiting with bated breath. Chris. Yep, but I've I'm, I'm just got some interviews to do, so you'll just have to be patient. You're just going to have to suck it up. You're just going to have to wait. It In better the... be extra good. It will be. 
And okay. in the meantime, if you're bored, hop over onto iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We love that. Really, really helps us out yep. uh, quite a bit. And if you want, head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. You can support the show there. And we really appreciate it. I mean, we have new people signing up all the time. And it's awesome. We can't uh, thank you guys enough for, you know, we actually had a guy sign up. His name's Barry White. Really? Yeah. We got to get him on the show. Yeah. We got to get him on. To yeah. Probably some deep voice guy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll see you guys next week. Take care. We can go if we want to. Night is young and so am I. And we can dress real neat from our hearts to our feet and surprise them with a victory cry. Say, we can act if we want to. If we don't, nobody will. And you can act real rude and totally removed. And I can act like an imbecile. Say, we can dance, we can dance. Everything's out of control. We can dance, we can dance. We're doing it from all to all. We can dance. We can dance, everybody look at your hands We can dance, we can dance Everybody's taking the chance Safe to dance, oh it's safe to dance